I think we're going to see from this psalm, I think, three R's. They're on your sheet. Um, I hope they're, help, uh, they're helpful. This psalm is a psalm of worship. Where God's people were called, I think we'll see three, to rejoice, to remember, and then lastly to repent. To rejoice, to remember, and to repent. Here's a question though, to begin with. What gets you rejoicing? What causes you to rejoice? You know, what makes your heart sing for joy? Is it cricket? It is for me. Maybe that's a bit lost on you, but that's okay. You know, what is it for you that makes you rejoice, you know, and your heart sing? Is it a particular film? Is it to be with your loved one? Is it to be with your family? Perhaps a particular view that you've seen. What makes your heart sing for joy? Now imagine you were to meet someone who was rejoicing. You ask them, you know, why are you so happy? Why are you rejoicing? And they say, oh, no reason whatsoever. What would you think of that person? I mean, it would seem a little bit odd. You'd assume that there was something wrong if they were rejoicing over no reason, for no reason. Likewise, if someone was seriously sad or depressed for, for no reason, you'd struggle, wouldn't you, to be sympathetic to them? It would just be odd. You see, we respond to circumstances and situations as we remember, as we recall, as we experience in proportion to the significance to us. So, for example, if England do win the third test, which is happening now, if you've missed it, you know, and it's unlikely, I will respond with rejoicing. I will then text all my Aussie mates and let them know about my rejoicing, because that would be natural. They can share my joy with me. That would be a lovely thing. But, of course, for many of you, that's completely lost on you, isn't it? But we're wired to respond as we experience or recall events that are true. But we will respond more if those circumstances, you know, if if we're inclined to rejoice over them. For some may that be cricket, that may be cricket. For others it may be significant moments, significant people in our lives. But we rejoice as we respond. But equally we might rejoice, sorry, we might respond with sadness. And we see that in this psalm today. Sadness rather than joy. But significant to both responses is the fact that we respond to something. To, to a truth, however we interpret that truth. And Psalm 81, what we have in front of us here, is the appropriate response to the greatest truth of them all. Now, So it really acts, I guess, as a benchmark to us of our response to that great truth. That is, I guess the warning for me is that if my heart rejoices more over a silly game of cricket being played, you know, if your heart rejoices more over a new job, a wage rise, a promotion, or a relationship, or the birth of a child, or whatever it may be, if your heart rejoices more, if you sing for joy, to use the language here, Obviously, metaphorically, because we're British. But if you, you know, if you sing for joy more in any other circumstance in life than over the truth of these verses, well, then you, like me, will need to humbly acknowledge your humanity and respond as the psalm calls you to respond. Trusting in God, the one who can draw, as we see in that last verse, sweetness, from the hardest place. Let me give you a bit of context, if you can, a bit, bit of background to this psalm. I hope this is helpful. It, it's a song 
um, that's what psalms are, and it would have been sung um, to worship God at the, the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the feast in Jerusalem that happened um, at the end of the year, their year, at harvest time. So God's people, as they sang the song, would, would look back in praise for their Lord as he had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and sustained them and refined them through all of those years wandering around in the desert, 40 years in, in total. It's also called the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, because a tradition was brought about at the Feast of Tabernacles where they would erect these kind of little booths out of kind of foliage and branches, and Jews still do that today. Um, and they, they, did it, they did it to remember how God, despite their just kind of woeful circumstances, was good to his promise. He sheltered them, he provided for them, and brought them into the promised land. The Feast of Tabernacles always happened at the full moon. And you see, therefore, verse 3 gives us that kind of historical reference point. So the psalm, the song here, and the feast both help people to, to, to remember that God has physically provided for them in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But the song and the feast also reminded them that that physical provision was nothing in, in comparison to the provision of himself. Which I guess is something that we also need to hear. We have so much to be thankful for. God in his common grace has, has provided for, for all of us, really. Uh, in so many amazing ways. But we need to be reminded, I hope today, that the greatest provision of all that we have is God himself. So this psalm is a song of worship to God, who is to us, as he was to his people then, the greatest blessing. The greatest blessing. And therefore the most deserving of praise. And this is where we get to our first point. Uh, he's the cause of our rejoicing, which is what we see in verses 1 to 5. Let's cast our eyes down there if we can. Beginning with verses 1 to 3. Here we see uh, worship, praised, rejoicing, and it is given there in those first three verses as a kind of natural response to all that God has done. So if you look at some of the, the language there, there's shouting aloud. There is, it's used elsewhere, that little phrase, actually in the Old Testament, as a kind of a joyous shout, a kind of hail of victory of a mighty king. In some ways, it's the same language used as a fanfare. We know, you know what we, a fanfare is. To mark the importance of the one being praised. But look at all the little bits of language. Sing for joy, verse 1. Shout aloud. Strike the tambourine. Play the harp. Play the lyre. It's extensive in the language, but it's very expressive as well, isn't it? And that points to the fact that we're to praise God with everything that we have. All that we are. With our whole hearts, our whole lives. We've been learning about that as we've been looking at Romans, haven't we? Romans 12, 1 to 3, that our, our lives are to be that complete offering of ourselves. We're to be living sacrifices to God. Let's think if we can, for just for a moment, that little phrase that the, the psalm begins with. Look at it if we can. Sing for joy. Sing for joy. I guess what that indicates, it, it indicates a gladness of one's heart, doesn't it? And if we're honest... 
I'm not sure we always have that gladness in our hearts. I certainly felt that as we were preparing this week. You know, how often do we come to church to go through the motions, to sing the songs, to pray the prayers, even, you might even prepare a Bible study and lead it without a gladness. You might even preach a sermon without the gladness of one's heart. You kind of left it on the pavement as you came in. Do you come to church and just go through the motions? Or do you expect your heart to leap for joy, to, to sing for joy here? When you hear of God and you, uh, through his word and when you sing his praise with his people in his church, we are not to let our culture and even, dare I say it, a church culture restrict our joy in who God is and what he has done for us. So we worship God as we respond to him with the whole of our hearts. And we do so with delight, singing for joy. That's what the word means there, with delight. We do so freely. And this is a willing response in verse 1 to 3, isn't there? But then you get to verse 4 and 5 and it changes a bit. You see that our worship there is also a duty. It's an interesting turn. God commands a response. So the decree and the ordinance of verse 4 seem to be suggesting that we're, we're actually to respond with worship and praise as a response to an order, essentially. I don't know if you remember the Olympics back in China, in Beijing, in 2008. The Chinese authorities actually employed a lot, of, a lot of the local people. They gave them uniforms to cheer along things like the marathon route and the, and the big cycle rides. Um, just, to, just to make sure that the country looked enthusiastic about this uh, wonderful event. Um, and they all cheered and they were very, very happy, it seemed. But just on one or two moments, and the BBC picked up on it a little bit, when the Chinese authorities you know, slipped a little bit and the cameras pan round, you realise that they may not exactly be enjoying being there. They're, you know, you could see the misery on their faces as they were forced to rejoice. It wasn't in their hearts. And we, we tend to kind of polarise things like that, don't we? we? We tend to think that a command and a willing response, they're kind of contradictory things. They're opposed to one, one another. But as creatures of a loving creator, we know that we owe God the worship that is due him. Uh, yes, we, we want to worship him willingly and freely and delight in worshipping him. But we also do it, don't we? Because we know it's the right thing to do. It's very difficult to illustrate. But let me, let me just think, think for a moment about your workplace. There's sometimes you go into your workplace, don't you? And you think, I'm working with that team this week and it's, we've had a great time. And you kind of skip into work and it's all good. And, you know, your best buddies, you're high-fiving it. No, not because you're not American. But, you know, you, you walk in and it, it's all good and you, you're excited to be there. It doesn't feel at that moment like a contractual duty. And yet it is a contractual duty to be there. There's kind of both, isn't, isn't there? Sometimes you go into work and it, it feels, oh, we've got to be there. But you know you've got to be there. But sometimes you go to work and it's, yeah, I really want to be there. It brings joy and happiness and purpose. You get the idea. 
We're to rejoice in God as a heartfelt, joyful response, but also as a duty. But why? Why? Well, there's a clue in verse 1. It's very clear right at the beginning because God is our strength. You see it there. The reason for praise is brought into the song later and more clearly in verse 5. Look at it there, verse 5. Asaph, as I said, the writer of the psalm, is, is recalling the 40 years that God's people wandered through the wilderness of Egypt. And he's reminding them there to, there to worship God, looking back to that objective reality of God's work of salvation. And he will elaborate on this in the following verses, from six following. But for now, the, the song's focus is rejoicing. Praise of God who is worthy. He's the one who, as it says in verse 5, went out against Egypt, freeing his people from slavery. He's the one who brought them into a land where they could understand the the language. God is the one who is worthy of this praise, this heartfelt, willing praise. It is not the empty praise of routine and meaningless worship. If I can, I want to just take you, if I can, to flip flip across to Isaiah chapter 1. That is on page... Um, 685. I think here is a really helpful warning against that kind of empty praise of routine and meaningless worship. Isaiah, God speaks to his people through his prophet there about this issue. And the warning is quite shocking. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Let me read from verse 10 if I can. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rules of Sodom. Listen to the law of, your God, of our God. You people of Gomorrah, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come and appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Um, new moons and sabbaths and convocations I hear I cannot bear your evil assemblies your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates they've become a burden to me I am weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands in prayer I will hide my eyes from you even if you offer many prayers I will not listen your hands are full of blood and the warning goes on and on and on for meaningless kind of empty, routine worship, where our hearts aren't singing for joy, willingly offer, offering our praise to God. Well, we're to praise him with all of our heart, our life and our mind. Why? Because he deserves it all. And we see that more and more in these following verses. Let's go to our second point if we can. Uh, and we see here, firstly, it was rejoice, our God, our God is our strength. Secondly, we to remember, why? Because God is our rescuer. God is our rescuer. See, if we were to follow verses 1 to 5 without a good reason, if we were to rejoice with, with no reason, it would be just a vacuous response, wouldn't it? It would be kind of a, a veneer of worship, just to put it on in the right place. But God is not looking for that kind of empty praise. So we need to respond to a truth, an objective, historically verifiable reality. 
And God reminds his people of that truth here in these verses. As he now speaks, if you notice, he speaks into the psalm. Notice the tense change when you get to, to verse 6. Look at it. Here says, he says, sorry, I removed the burdens from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. In your distress you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of the thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. See, God chooses here a couple of um, kind of sequences to, to, if you like, to remind his people that their worship must not forget, but rather remember so to rejoice. Their rejoicing must be based on something, an objective truth. And we see in verse 6, he reminds them that he removed their burden, their hands were set free. They're to remember God's love shown in his physical provision for them. It was clear, it was obvious, they could look back and remember. Verse 7 takes it to the next level there, look at it. You called, I rescued. And that's of course a sufficient cause to rejoice, isn't it? But God, even God answering his people out of a thundercloud at the beginning of verse 7. Now that's probably referring back to Mount Sinai there in Exodus 19. Even that, of course, is, is great cause to rejoice, isn't it? But then God throws in this amazing googly, to use a, another cricket metaphor. Uh, it's something unexpected if you don't like cricket. You know, it's, a, it, it's a bit odd. It's a bit strange. And look at it. The end of verse 7, God's people are to remember and therefore rejoice. Why? Because he tests them. And we see that because of, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. See, the lessons of of the wilderness, those 40 years that this song recalls, are, are not to rejoice and remember the good, the provision of God, the deliverance of God, the, the rescue from God. No, the lessons of the wilderness that the people are now to sing and remember are also those refining tests from God. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, you'll know this, I'm sure, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, recalls these tests as a warning to the Corinthian church. And I take that to be, it ought to be a warning to us as well, that God, in his love and his kindness, will test us to refine us. And we should rejoice in that and be glad. See, if Sinai, uh, speaking through the thundercloud, was an education from God by an encounter with God, well, Mirabah was an education through neglect. He removed himself from them. See, God lovingly tests us to refine us. He can test us through a sickness and illness, and he can test us through our good health as well. He can test us in our prosperity, or he can test us in our poverty. Look back, he's saying here. Remember, and so rejoice. Verse 8, uh, if you look onto that, it is supposed to remind the, the singer, originally, the reader, uh, as in us, is uh, uh, remember. They're trying, he's trying to recall the, the summary of the law there in, in Deuteronomy 6. You know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so we've heard it read there. There's, there's little phrases which are being picked up here. And the writer does that, we, many people think, because 
it's acting as a summary. When when the Feast of Tabernacles happened, the Feast of Booths happened, um, always the whole law would have been read. Now, if he was to put that into a song, it would be a very long song. So what he's doing here is is a little summary to remind them of what is expected at the Feast of Tabernacles. So verses 8 to 10 are like a little snippet, a little, just a little part of the whole reading of the law. So people remember God's providential provision, but also his covenantal requirements within the law. So the quoting of the first commandment there in, in verse 9 was to set into the song like a benchmark for us all. You're to have no other gods before the Lord who, who rescues. Yes, we've seen that. He also refines. It's an enduring issue for us all, isn't it? Whether you place uh, you know, a God before, before the Lord God, you know, that could be you yourself. That you live to serve yourself. You maybe even place work before God, or you know, a relationship before God, or a loved one before God. That idolatry seems to be kind of the lazy default position for, for, for many of our stubborn hearts, doesn't it? And it's a challenge we will always face. Why? Well, we often place... Another in, the, in our priorities before God because we think that will give us a greater return. If we serve ourselves first and put ourselves before God, well, we'll, we'll have a nicer life, won't we? Well, that will feel better at times. You, know, you put your needs, your desires before God. So we often think that that way will be more fun, don't we? More profitable for us. We think we'll be more satisfied. But God calls us and the singer of this psalm back to reality. Look at it in verse 10. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it, he says. He's done that. And he will always do that. Rejoice, God is our strength. How are we to rejoice and what are we to base that praise? We're to remember that God is our rescuer. And he will always provide. He will always satisfy. Of course, that is a physical satisfaction for the the people of the old covenant as well as a spiritual one. But for us in Christ, it is that satisfaction of knowing the hope of glory, of being saved by the Lord Jesus. But as we recall the work of God in our lives, we're not only called to rejoice, but we're also called to repent, we see here in, in this psalm. And that is the constant challenge of the Christian heart and life, isn't it? It's a balance we have to make. We're not only to to kind of skip around and rejoice and sing praises to God. No, we're also to be sorrowful about our sin. And to daily repent and turn our backs on our sin and live for God. It's a constant tension in our lives as we remember what God has done for us. And we see the reason that we ought to repent here. Look, look if you can, at verses 11 and 12. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. It's a frightening warning, isn't it? God's people, as they worship, are to rejoice, remember, and now repent. It is a loving warning of God in verse 11. But verse 12, it might not be as it seems. Being handed over, being given over to what our hearts desire by by God, well, that is actually a terrifying ordeal. 
Our problem, I think, is that, and we saw this in Romans, didn't we, in chapter 1, is that we only look just moments into the future. And we think, oh, if we're handed over to our heart's desires, well, that looks pretty good. But it is the most terrifying judgment from an eternal God. For he sees beyond the present. And the, the little thrill that you might enjoy in, your, in that sinful inclination. And he sees into the eternity of a just judgment for that sin. As you've turned away from God. Essentially what he's saying is you'll get what you want. Eternal life, only knowing God's fair and just judgment. He'll hand you over to it. Give you over to it. We saw it in Romans 1. There was a similar warning there for those who choose to ignore God. And, and this, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a lot of little phrases in this psalm saying, Listen, listen, obey, submit, come back, turn to me. Hear the warning and repent. You see it in verse 13 and 14. Look at those. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. The psalm finishes like this. We're going to finish here. There's a stark contrast in the last two verses. And it's a strong reminder of God's provision and grace. And in a sense, you can boil it down to this. You're either verse 15 or you're verse 16. Verse 15. Those who hate the Lord will cringe before him and their punishment will last forever. Verse 16. But you, that is you who have trusted in God, who have turned your lives back to him, the inclination of your heart back to him, you, but you, you will be fed with the finest wheat, with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. So if you are one of God's people sat here today, we're, we're to rejoice. We're to rejoice, remembering that God is our rescuer. He hasn't rescued us from a literal wilderness, but a spiritual one. The Lord Jesus has rescued us through his perfect life and death when he substituted himself on that cross to take verse 15 on himself for each of us so that we might know verse 16. And if you're not a Christian here, then life may be good, but look beyond today for there will come a time when verse 15 will be a reality. And your stubborn heart will then realise that you will have needed to have turned and repented and trusted Jesus. But it will be too late. And maybe someone's here and you just think, look, I'm, I've been doing some silly stuff. I know I've been turning my back on God. I know what he says in his word. And you kind of think... I've gone too far. I'm a little bit beyond God and his reach, his rescue and his love. Well, look what God can do. Look at the final little verse, if you can, in, in verse 16. It's a beautiful, beautiful little phrase. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. I think what he's saying here, and commentators point to the fact that God is a God who is powerful and 
and as a creator, loving God, he can bring sweetness from the hardest of things. He can bring sweetness from the hardest of hearts. And if that is you today, trust him. Trust his son with your life and with your death and know his provision today. The hope of glory in our hearts, that down payment of the spirit to lead and guide us as we read God's word. And that little phrase at the end, the finest wheat. The psalm finishes with with that God's provision will be endless and joyful and with great amazing quality, the finest wheat. God will always provide. Know this truth and you will be satisfied. Let's pray as, as we close. Maybe a moment, just the quietness of our own hearts. To maybe just recall our hearts and just say, remember what God has done supremely through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remembering to rejoice, but also to turn our hearts back to him. He doesn't offer us complete provision today of the finest, but he offers us hope and glory to come. That's just a moment of our hearts to turn our hearts back to God and trust him.